You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Everybody, welcome back. We have a great show for you today. I'm your host, Mike Brazier. Joining me in studio is um, um, Chris Jennings. It's been a while, man. Jeez, you <laughs> forgot my name. <laughs> I did not all forget right. your name. That was just all a all a play. So, <laughs> Chris Jennings, good to have you here, man. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. <laughs> and we're going to be uh, have a little discussion here, revisiting the breeding population survey results from, I guess, about a week and a half ago. Now, joining us. For that discussion is our great friend from up in Canada. The one and only Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. We're excited to have him join us. And I guess this will be the first time that we've really had an opportunity to, to dig in with on this uh, report and its data with you. Scott, you're always a great source of information leading up to this report. And we're going to actually... Uh, have you help us decipher it now? Welcome. Yeah, good to be here. I thought I was mostly a source of entertainment, though, not information. <laughs> information on this one. Okay, okay. <laughs> and entertainment. <laughs> you can okay. do both. All right, I'll try. I'll do my best. So we are about, what, a week and a half out 
you know, from the from that survey when it was released by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, again, want to clarify, this is not a Ducks Unlimited survey. It is not a Ducks Unlimited report. We do uh, obviously put put the uh, summarize some of the information and put it out there and help advertise for the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, and all the other folks that contribute to that. But uh, yeah, we're going to pick up pick up this discussion. And I guess before we do any sort of in-depth talk and get Scott's perspective, was he surprised? What did he think when he saw the numbers? We have a piece of information we're going to revisit from an episode that, and Scott hasn't heard this yet. I've heard it. Chris has, has heard it. part of it. That we, as a discussion that we had back in February, in an episode that I think aired February 17th, where we were talking with Scott and we were trying to handicap at that time what we thought the total duck population for the traditional survey area was going to be mm-hmm. this year. Uh, Chris, do we have that ready? Okay, here we go. Let's listen. I'm going to see how you handle this. What's okay. All right, so last year, the breeding population estimate for the traditional survey area, total ducks, was 34.2 million, right? Yeah. What is Dr. Scott Stevens going to put the over-under at for this year? Well, it's definitely going to be above that, right? Because we had <laughs> we had improved production compared to where we were the year before. Um, hmm. Good question. I'll say... That's why I asked it. I'm known for good questions once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once a week, I'll say I'll say thirty-eight million. Woo! Given given huh? the conditions I'm looking at now, all right. You know if that that's where we'll go. Thirty-eight. You heard it here first. The over/under from Dr. Scott Stevens is thirty-eight. Lock it in. I'm going to be a little pessimistic. I'm going to say thirty-six point five. It is above the thirty-four point two. Mathematicians out there can corroborate that, but um, yeah, I'm going to go thirty-six point five. Thirty-six point five. Perfect. That we'll was lock closer. Those in. Jennings, do you want to get on the record? Not yet. I'm no. going to wait to see the weather. Okay. That's that's a smarter move, Chris. That's yeah, smarter. So you can't put me on the spot. You guys, hey, you guys, you guys are the experts. And you never did follow up, even after you saw the weather, Chris. You never, you never gave us uh, an estimate. We never really had an opportunity. Yeah, we never really had that. an opportunity to do that. But I'm really glad that I did not pick a number. <laughs> he he would have gone with 32. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he would have. I, I probably would have gone with like I don't know 32.4. Probably Chris, right around there. Yeah, Chris is often <clears throat> the more pessimistic. Uh, between the two of us. Yeah, probably. Right? So, yeah, yeah, you would have been, probably would have been closer. I probably would have been all, a little lower. Yeah. We would have all probably gone over, though. Yeah, you know, I would have definitely gone been over. Pay homage to the late Bob Barker, who passed away just a few days ago. You know, we would have all gone over. We would, none of us would have won the prize. None uh, of us would have been in the nope, showcase the showdown. showcase right. showdown. Nope. None of us would have done that. So, that 38, that's a big number, Scott. That was, that yeah, was that, super that, optimistic. That's like real diehard duck makes hunter me, optimism. makes me right wonder there. why we even have him on here today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that's out to lunch as it turns out. <laughs> that, that, that's the reason we, we use data is because <laughs> our guesses aren't always that good. Right. What's your initial reaction there, Scott? I, I was definitely surprised it was down for sure. But quickly, once I saw the data, it's like, well, okay. Um, you know, if it was down, you know, my my post-talk uh, explanation in front of the data would be, well, last spring, I know at least in this part of the world, was a little late and a little cool and a little weird. And it's like, okay, maybe that impacted production more than more than we anticipated. So Scott, before we get into that a little bit more, I want to just remind folks, the number we're talking about right now from this breeding population 
it's called the waterfowl status report. That's that's what it comes out in. But it's it's their estimates obtained from the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. They're conducted May, early June of every year. It is measuring the number of ducks that settle in those breeding landscapes. It's before any production occurs. Uh, it's uh, They are estimates that are extrapolated across that entire survey area. They fly transect. We've kind of covered the methodology on past, past episodes, but they extrapolate out to these large survey areas, and it is, is an estimate of the waterfowl population size at the time of that breeding season. That is kind of important to keep in mind because it's not, it, that's not the number that necessarily waterfowl hunters are going to be so concerned about later in the year. That number later in the year is a function of that breeding population size and the productivity that occurs during the summer, during that spring and summer period, which itself is a function of habitat conditions. Anything to add to that, Scott, to kind of frame that up? No, that's right. I mean, we think about the BPOP number, which is what, what we get out of that survey, is the breeding population. So that's what we start with. And that, by the way, is kind of the, I was going to say, smallest number of birds that that we start with for the year, right? And then we're subtracting some throughout the breeding season from that and then adding production. And then that's what gives us the number of birds that wing their way southward and people see over their decoys. So... The traditional survey area, I think I might have said this already, but the number we had was 32.3 million total ducks in the traditional survey area. That's the largest portion of it. That's that mid-continent sort of central flyway, Mississippi flyway, Pacific flyway area. Uh, and then you have the eastern survey area. The number of ducks that are counted or estimated there is, is typically much smaller. I think this year is four or five million. I don't have that total number uh, summed here in front of me. Uh, but it was that that total duck number in the traditional survey area, which was down, uh, and it was down 7% from last year, It's that, and that number is 9% below the long-term average. Scott, I remember whenever I first saw that report, I too, I was surprised because I re- remembered a lot of the conversations we had last year, and I guess that's the other piece of this, is that the breeding population size that we anticipated during our conversation you know, earlier in the year would have been a function of last year's breeding population size, the production that occurred last summer. Right. And then the number of birds that kind of survived and made it back up there this spring. And as you heard, we were all expecting a little bit higher number because we had talked about the productivity and the the, the end of the drought across a good chunk of that prairie landscape, not all of it. And we were anticipating more production. Now, uh, Scott, I can tell you, I don't know if you looked at this report, but uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service also puts out a report summarizing harvest data from from last year. One of the pieces of information in that report is what's called the age age ratio, the, yeah. the number of juvenile birds relative to adult birds in the harvest. That data comes from the wing bee surveys, the wings that hunters provide whenever they're asked to participate in that parts collection survey. Those age ratio data were all up last year. You go back and look at the 21 data, which would have been a reflection of the extreme drought of 2021. Those numbers were low. There was very little production. And the data, everybody that hunted that year, 21, 22, would tell you, yeah, a lot of old birds in that fall flight. The data bored out. Last year, I think most hunters would also say, yeah, there were more young birds in the flocks in our bag 
the age ratio data from Harvest also bore that out. So there was production last year. There's going to be production every year, but there was a, right. there was a pretty sizable uptick in production last year over 21. Uh, and so that kind of adds to the head scratching of like, well, what's what's up with these with these numbers? And like I've said on some of the other things that we've done, we're not going to try to explain every up or down move in these numbers. We just can't, right? Scott, do you do you feel do you, do you want to do you feel like you 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 should be able to do that? You know, you're a scientist, right? And so you're supposed to be able to explain why this went up and this went down and what do you I, I don't feel like I need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there's some of that. I, I mean, I would say Mike, I think you talked about this in the webinar session too. It's like if it's plus or minus 5 I sort of go, that's pretty similar. Like, and I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time explaining plus or minus five. So, so remember, we're, we're minus, what, seven from last year? It's like, okay, so we're probably down, but not a substantial amount. So, you know, we, we could spin stories all day, but it just means the numbers aren't that different. I think what Mike's trying to do is just justify why he was wrong because he does not want to be wrong. <laughs> I'm okay being wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, wrong all the time. I, I would say the one the one observation that I had, you know, like thinking back, we talked in February. I know the snow melted and we had reports and, and then I actually got to see some conditions in early June. I was out east of Saskatoon. We had prairie experience up there. And I know when I got out on the landscape, I was like, oh, it's still pretty darn dry. Like there was water, but there was no shallow water. Like there, there was no water in seasonal and ephemeral ponds. And I went, okay, so there would be pears here, but you know, it's really that, that shallower water that really drives settling of dabbling ducks for sure. Um, and, and I was struck, I was surprised how dry it was out in that country. It's like, oh, it was drier than I expected. Was that, so, this, was that this year? That was this year. Yeah, I remember Dr. Tom Mormon. I think he was up there for maybe Ducks University. He went up there for something. And he, I may be confusing the years, but uh, I want to say it was him. It, it was Tom that said he drove through that area and there were a larger than normal, larger than expected number of unoccupied ponds. It kind of sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been last year because okay. Dutch Prairie Experience alternates within, so Dutch University was in Bismarck this year. So it would have been last year that Tom probably would have been up. So yeah, when, when I was out, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we had some recovery from drought, but we had no shallow water on on that landscape, at least east of Saskatoon, which is Allen Dana Hills. It's a big target landscape that we invest a bunch of program dollars in, and it was just pretty dry. Not like no water, but it was pretty dry from a settling standpoint, I would say. Scott, just for, you know, some of our listeners who probably may not be as visually understanding of what the prairie landscape looks like and how it, you know, how it shapes up, um, kind of describe that larger, the larger wetlands compared to the smaller wetlands, and then also the transition throughout spring and summer. I mean, things can change up there pretty drastically, and that area doesn't really get a ton of rain anyway, or it's not supposed to. That's right. Um, but just kind of describe that a little bit, how that, and what do the ducks do when it is dry? Are they all going onto these larger wetlands, or are some of them just flying over? 
So across these landscapes in the prairies that, that we're talking about, there would be sort of a full complement of wetlands ranging from ones that are a few inches deep and, you know, may hold water for a few weeks in the spring to, you know, bigger lakes that are, you know, three or four or five feet deep and hold water in all but, you know, the, the most severe drought. And, and kind of everything in between. And typically when we think about, okay, what, what are the conditions when, especially dabbling ducks that, that feed in those shallow areas, what are the best conditions for them? That would be, we have all kinds of those shallow wetlands are full and brimming with water, you know, after that runoff. And, you know, when I was there in June, it's like, we clearly did not have that this year in, in that area. So, you know, what, what do the birds do? Um, you know, I, I suspect that, you know, we, we've talked about territoriality and those kind of things before on this podcast too. So birds are territorial, you know, some of those smaller wetlands are dry. They're not setting up on those. Then, you know, the only thing that's left is deeper wetlands and there's just not as much pair habitat. So, you know, the pair numbers with those conditions, we would expect to be down in some of those areas. What do the what do the extra birds do? They probably push north and into the boreal forest. You know where we think they find places to breed, but they're probably less productive. So Scott, the pond number that uh, which is an index of habitat conditions, breeding habitat conditions in that super important prairie pothole region. It was down ten percent from last year. Five now five percent below the long term average. Previous year it was five point five. This year it was four point nine. Basically five million. Did that? Did that surprise you that it was down? Yeah, I, I would say it did because you know as I was looking at reports, Mike, like you, I was thinking, oh, we've we've improved some. You know, it's not as dry as it was the previous year, but you know the pond count sort of sort of bears out what I described was my experience on the ground. You know, I got out there and it's like, oh. Yeah, there's water. It's not totally dry, but there was not nearly as much water as I was expecting based on the reports that I was reading and paying attention to. I do want to ask you about a couple of species. Mallard at the top of that. Uh, that one is down 18% from last year, now down 23% from the long-term average. And I was talking to Dr. Steve Adair about some of this, and he said, yeah, you know, it's... Yeah. Most people would probably look at that and say, I'm a bit surprised because we know we had some production last year. Yeah, and, and again, recognizing that there is a range around that 18%, right? Um, yeah. He also, he also discussed this idea that it sometimes takes a couple of years before those wetlands that have been dry and oftentimes been farmed if they've been dry. It oftentimes it takes a couple of years for those things to recharge to full productivity. Is there potential for some of what we're seeing here to be like a lag effect of just needing a couple of years of good habitat conditions before we really get to that um, super production that we know can be can, can happen? That could be part of it. I mean, but I... I guess my counter would be we have we have a bunch of those shallow ponds that are not in cropland too, right? That that don't take a couple years to sort of recover and grow vegetation and be ready to go. And and even the ones in cropland, you know, bloom pretty quickly with the aquatic insects. You know, I'm thinking things like fairy shrimp that pintails go crazy over. Like those those should have been there if if we had water, but clearly we had less water than we did the year before. So that's driving some of it. I mean, you know, we, we know that mallards are a species that will overfly and go into the boreal forest. And just given the density of transects there, we count them, 
you know, we count them less well when when they move further north. You know, we we know that's the case with pintails too. You know, there's a correction in the AHM for what is it, latitude of centroid of the latitude that they account for those kind of things. It's it's the same kind of thing happens with mallards. So, you know, am I surprised? Yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised. Am I worried about mallards? I'm I'm not. Like they're the most resilient species we have, and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm still in the boat of I'm confident that if we get the right conditions and the prairies at a at a widespread scale are sopping wet, like I think we'll we'll see duck production increase, we'll see populations recover. You know, I, I I'm not in the camp of oh my gosh, you know, this is the end or mallard's gonna become extinct. The answer to that is no. <laughs> I, I'm pretty confident in that. Scott, I I wanna go back to one thing that you mentioned because I get a lot of people that they kind of wonder about this. When we say that we don't count birds in the boreal forest as well as we do in the prairies, part of that, as you said, is is due to the lower density, perhaps more uniform density. We start to get in, into some sort of st- statistical design theory here, right? There are a lot of those boreal uh, strata where there are fewer transects. Now, st- statistical theory would say you're still going to get an accurate estimate from that process, but there's going to be more, there's going to be less precision around it. I mean, if if it's a year where you've got a larger population size there, maybe they're not as distributed as uniformly, then in that situation, you could end up with a little more noise around that that estimate, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the other statistical thing that we need to talk about is uh, detection probability, right? Yeah. Like we, yeah. do a, we do an air ground correction for that every year in the prairies. And in the boreal, I think it's a it's a constant factor. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been done, you know, it's been corrected, but it's not adjusted on an annual basis. So there are a few of those things that just make it more challenging, as you said, to get precise estimates when birds are further north. Uh, and, and again, to your point, that is why we don't make conservation decisions, investment decisions on a one-year type of basis. We look at the long term, both in terms of population trajectory as well as of, of sort of habitat trajectory and what those risks and threats are. And so, yes, yeah. yes, they do inform harvest regulations on an annual basis, at least here in the States, but that's kind of a separate conversation. And, um, those, those decisions take into account uncertainty and modeling aspects as well. Scott, I've got one question for you. And Mike and I have kind of, we touched on this, I think last week on the podcast, but the reality is we didn't have the survey for two years. So we were kind of, you know, we're assuming, oh, it's, you know, numbers are up. Well, we didn't really know. They could have been really down. You know, this could right. be way up compared to what. But I, I, the reason why I'm asking you that is because did you see that stark contrast or, or has it been pretty stable as far as what you've just kind of, you mentioned you, you know, laid eyes on, you know, wetlands in June and we're able to, you know, you're kind of surprised that it was so dry. But when you've done that the last few years, has it been pretty consistent or, you know, did, did you notice, oh man, it's really, when we knew it was pretty dry, but we just don't have yeah. the data to back it up. Yeah. Well, the, the second year that we missed with the survey was real dry. Okay. So, yeah. so I, I think my prediction, which we've, we've already demonstrated is not very good, <laughs> uh, but my prediction for that year would have been, yeah, the, the BPOP number was probably lower than we saw this year back. What would that be now? 21. 21. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my guess. It it was dry. Yeah, um, yeah, and and things improved a bit. You know, last year 
and uh, and we thought, you know, we we thought maybe things that had improved a little bit more this year, but it wasn't the case. It it was it was back pretty darn dry again. And you know, as I, I know, we're just getting ready for this season. But as we begin to think about okay, and how are things setting up for next year? I would say, boy, you know. We are dry where it would take, we'd, we'd need soaking rains to saturate the soil just before we freeze up, you know, and, and if we don't get that, like, I don't think there's enough snow to, to make a difference, you know, come, come this winter. So, you know, now these, these droughts sort of turn just as quickly as they came, right? And, and everything sets up and we get rain in the fall and we get piles of snow and it can turn pretty quickly, but right now it's, we're, we're not seeing the signs that it's turning yet, for sure. We're going to take a break right here uh, when we come back. I want to ask you about a couple of other species. Then we're going to, I think there's a, the North Dakota brood survey came out, came out here the past few days. And I know you and I and others have been fielding a lot of questions about that. So we want to touch on that. I also want to talk briefly about what we've learned in terms of adaptive harvest management and some of the recommendations coming out of that recent report. And then we'll close up uh, with like a, maybe a few more questions about habitat conditions. So stay with us, folks. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Everybody, welcome back 
here in studio with my, with my co-host. Can't Chris, remember his Chris name. But, yeah. <laughs> For the record, hey, I did not What's forget going your on, name. Buddy? I, that, was, that was me trying to be funny, and, and it worked at least to some extent. And joining us remotely is Dr. Scott Stevens. Uh, we're talking about the recently released BPOP survey results. BPOP. Breeding population is what that stands for. I actually had some other people here recently ask me about that. What does Bebop stand for? Breeding population, shorthand for that. Yeah, it's uh, not it's not like K-pop or any of that. Stuff. <laughs> it's different. Not here in this building anyway. Uh, okay, two species. I want your sort of quick thoughts about uh, Scott Pintail. Pintail, yeah. So they were up a little bit. Twenty-two um, percent. Yeah, I, he's not. I he's not buying it. I wouldn't get too excited about that. I mean, when I think about pintails, I, and especially when we compare to the long-term average, I, I just think that when we look back at the long-term average of pintails, I, I'm not sure we're ever going to see the pintails that we saw in the late 70s again, given the changes to the landscape that have happened. So when I look at their variation since then, it's like, okay, yep, there are still ups and downs, but, you know, and so this is up. That's good news. It's a species that that we typically have concern about because their numbers have been down from higher numbers previously. But yeah, I mean, if there are more pintails around, that's that's awesome. Up 24% from last year, down 43% now from the long-term average. This is another, another one of those species that, as you mentioned, will overfly the prairies into that boreal area. And we know that some of these birds actually go into what they call the unsurveyed area. Uh, and so that's also part of that correction you're talking about for the sake of harvest regulations. And yeah, so this number, this 24% increase, when you juxtapose it to all the other decreases, you have to think this is perhaps maybe partly a reflection of of some birds not being counted or estimated last year, you know, if that be mm-hmm. the year. When, because we got so close, it was like the record low number. And that's right. kind of a difficult thing to message. But I, I guess it's also, we have to be honest about this. It's, just, it's, a, it's an estimate. There are the really good estimates of precision around these numbers, but it's still a highly mobile group of animals. It's still 2 million square miles of area that we're trying to, to uh, extrapolate to. There's still some noise in these estimates from one year to the next, and everybody will acknowledge that, but we do the best we can. Our partners do the best they can, and we work with the data that we get. I, I would argue that these surveys were really set up to do a good job of surveying mallards. You know, like that was the target species. That's how the the transects were distributed was through the core of the mallard range. And so, you know, it probably does the best job with mallards that are also more abundant. So we get more data to feed into those estimates. And when you deal with less abundant species, it's like, you know, there's going to be wider confidence limits. And, you know, you get things like we see with pintails, which doesn't make a ton of sense with ponds down and, you know, all of those things. But it's like, okay, I would interpret that as as pintails didn't, you know, we, we didn't pick up a big decline, so maybe that's good. You know, are they are they up as much as the survey suggests? Not sure. Um, yeah. And then your favorite species, the blue wing, they were down 19%. Uh, they're about, they're right at the long-term average, but down 19%. We, we talked last year about good production for blue wings that folks were supposedly seeing and did see across the landscape. We'll be honest about that. There was production last was year. Was it 18 or 19 when that blue wing number was at like 8 million? Yeah. It was fairly recently, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, it was... I'll tell you. That was a huge number there. Yeah, and, and there like are species 14, that... Maybe. 
that can really boom when conditions are right um, too. And yeah, when when not, then they'll decline. So did that number surprise you? Down having blue wings be down? Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought there were going to be thirty eight million total ducks. So of course, <laughs> okay. of course it surprised me. <laughs> well, a few a few million less blue wings. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Starting to add up. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that North Dakota brood survey. Um, actually, before we we touched on the Eastern Survey area a little bit. A little bit. I, mean, yeah. I guess maybe I just Scott, your thoughts on that before we get to that brood survey. Your thoughts on the Eastern Survey area. I mean, that's got to be there were some good numbers in there. If you're uh, if you're someone in the Atlantic Flyway, Mallard numbers yeah. stayed strong. It looks like it's going to hang on to that four bird bag limit that that comes at those when those levels are, are up there. Um, no major moves on any of the other species. Black ducks seem to still be showing some stable stability around the uh, around that number where they are. So overall, pretty solid picture there out of the Eastern Survey area. Yeah, it's it's just a lot less variable than than we have in the mid continent. So you know, not not nearly as big a swings, and so it's kind of steadier populations for the Atlantic Flyway folks. Chris, anything to add there? No, I mean I think just you know it's good to have these conversations. People will look at these numbers, and a couple of years ago it was the Eastern Survey, or last year, you know, this year. I'm getting text messages about, oh, you know, that widgeon number is really down. That's going to hurt us. Like, I don't really know if that's, I don't know yeah. if that's how it works. So it's good to have these conversations where, and having you guys really explain that this, a lot of these numbers, it's a good data set. It's good overall information, but it's also something to kind of take with a grain of salt as far as, you know, you've even mentioned it with the Pindales. Like, yeah, you don't really know if that number looks right. But, right. you know, it's just, yeah. it just gives gives everyone kind of a, a a level playing field there. So, and that's especially with the Eastern Survey too. That's why I popped in my head there. Yeah. And I think to that point, Chris, and, you know, in this being only one of very, of a, of a large number of factors that are going to influence folks' decision to hunt this fall and um, experiences out in the field this fall. Uh, the I've heard recently from folks uh, in Louisiana, and I've seen pictures from folks in coastal Louisiana. I've been meaning to send these photos to you. There are areas, significant areas of the marsh, at least in southwestern Louisiana, I don't know about southeastern, where it is dry. I'm talking no water in some of the places where I have hunted before, you know, knee deep and deeper. And um, it is cracked soil, no water there for blue wings in a lot of those areas, no water in the borrow ditches or the canals into those areas. That's going to be an interesting discussion that we have with Jason Olszak whenever mm-hmm. they fly that survey, if things don't change between now and then. It is super dry. So in that landscape, if you have a dry duck lease, it doesn't matter what the breeding population yeah. size yeah. is. There's some pretty stark images there uh, in, in parts of Louisiana. Uh, okay, the North Dakota Brood Survey. How many, Chris, how many times, how many people have contacted you about that? Probably 10. And that number, that survey basically said, what, broods are up 80% from last 80%. year or something like that? I, I, don't, I don't have that report in front of me, but I know it was a very positive message from that survey which indicated good brood production in in North Dakota and I've had several people contact me and say Mike how can this be when breeding population numbers are down and I'm like well let's just slow down here I mean those surveys are measuring a breeding population survey and a brood survey are measuring two totally different things. Yes, the brood production depends on a on breeding ducks being there, but they're measuring two different things. And without having to get into any sort of density dependence uh, type of discussion, you could actually make a case, right, Scott, that when when populations are low, 
productivity, if habitat conditions are good, productivity could be higher. Yeah, it, it, it could be. Um, now, I, I haven't spent time in North Dakota this year, but I understand conditions are substantially better there than what I'm looking at. But when I look across the landscape, it's like I would not expect there to be great production because things are dry, right? Just like we talked about. They haven't changed much since May. Um, and you're, you're talking about at the larger scale. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's the other factor. I mean, it's good to have information like this from a specific jurisdiction like North Dakota. But I think, you know, in the, in the breeding population surveys, you know, the Eastern Dakotas, which would capture North and South Dakota, you know, even in the peak years in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, they were, those, those areas were like 16% of the total breeding population. So, you know, you have to put that in context. It's good that conditions are good in North Dakota. You know, at, at best, they're 15% of the total. So, yeah. And that's the other thing that I told, I, I told folks is that I am happy to hear about duck production in North Dakota. If, yeah. we, if we didn't have duck production in North Dakota, I would be worried because it is, it was probably, probably set up in the prairies as one of the better places, uh, habitat yeah. condition-wise, uh, across North Dakota, South Dakota, and that survey region in Montana, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million breeding ducks estimated across that landscape. And we know there were good moisture conditions. Maybe they came a little bit late, but they were still good. And I think reports are that they've kind of, they've continued to get some beneficial rain periodically to keep those wetlands in pretty decent shape. That's a good recipe for duck production, duckling production. And so I would have been worried if we didn't have some indication of production there. Now, interpreting 80% above last year and whatever it is relative to the long-term average, that's, I'm not, I don't even, I don't have the report here with me, so I can't really speak to any of that. But the, the point is, those results are not necessarily inconsistent or not at all inconsistent with, uh, or, well, I should say not necessarily inconsistent with uh, uh, a low BPOP number. They're just different surveys. And I think it's a bright spot uh, that, and we do have some production there. Uh, Mike Tomansky there with North Dakota, I did exchange a couple of emails with him. He said the one thing that he wished would have uh, would have been stated more clearly in that report is that whenever they started talking about their anticipation for a fall flight in that report, he wished it would have clarified a North Dakota fall flight as in terms of the number of birds being produced from that state. So, so that's kind of where we are on that. Uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about here? I guess harvest management, that's one of the other thing that, that the Fish and Wildlife Service releases at the same time they release this status report. Uh, the flyway councils, their technical committees meet. Uh, well, there's one of them meeting this week, maybe two of them meeting this week, at least a couple met last week. They take this information, they take the information from the Adaptive Harvest Management Report and use it to develop recommendations for harvest packages for next year. The, the survey data we have right now from this year will inform harvest regulations in the states for next year. It's done differently in Canada, but the AHM report that is out, which I read over the weekend states that they anticipate no changes in the harvest regulations across the four flyways for next year. Now, that's uh, that's that's the lead question that I get from folks is like, well, what do all these numbers mean for harvest regulations? That's in the AHM report. They anticipate no changes uh, next year. Now, there's a process that has to play out, and we can have somebody come on and talk with us about all the specifics of that, but uh, but that's kind of where we are. Scott, I got a couple questions for you. And this are, uh, Since I've already proved I'm great at speculation <laughs> yeah. about 
what numbers will be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Go not, ahead, I'm not going to ask you for any uh, gambling tips or anything. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, you've already proven to fail there, but I mean, it is right here. We're recording this on August 28th. Your waterfowl season kicks off in four days. Yeah. What's the plan? What's, you know, where are you starting out? I think you, know? you need to sit it out given these low yeah. population numbers. Yeah, I, I think, think you, you need should to probably sit, it out. sit this one out. Yeah. Well, you, you said something, Mike, earlier about people making their decision on whether to hunt. And I, I was going to say, my, my advice is hunt. Like life is short. You better hunt <laughs> yeah. even, even when it's dry and numbers are down. But yeah, I, I will be out there. Like I will be hunting. Um, yeah, I'll go to some of my usual spots that stage blue wings. And despite the fact that they're down 24% or whatever it was, there will be blue wings there to take advantage of. So eight of them specifically. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, daily bag limit is eight birds a day up here. So I hope to, I hope to get into, to teal and, and, uh, harvest eight blue wings or occasionally there'll be some green wings mixed in when, but the, the season is open for all the ducks. For us, I, I just am one of the weird guys who focuses on blue wings and, you know, won't shoot won't shoot other ducks this time of year if I can avoid it. Uh, you'll have plenty of other ducks later in the season, I'm sure. So Yeah, that's right. Once, uh, once it gets a little colder and chase those blue wings out, that's probably when it's mallard time. But yeah, no, I just, you know, and what what is the uh, kind of the hunting conditions look like? And we've talked about the spring conditions um, and kind of through the summer, but as we get into early fall, uh, what, what would you be telling, you know, people are like, Hey, I'm, I'm planning on going up to Canada to freelance or, you know, I'm going to Eastern Sask, you know, Saskatchewan or something like that. What would you, what would you tell them? Yeah, that, that's a good question. My, my advice is usually pretty standard. It's like, okay, you'll, you'll want to do your homework and you know, like, like when I'm looking for blue wing spots, it's like, I'm always looking for shallow water you know, six or eight inches of water is ideal. Um, I'm not typically hunting small ponds that birds would breed on. I'm hunting more larger water, but there'll be large flats out there. So, you know, that's what I look for is the same recipe of water depth, depending on the species that you're chasing. But, you know, guys coming to Canada this fall, um, they will want to spend their time scouting and that's always good advice, but you may need to put on more miles to find where the water is and where the birds are are staged up and, and using those areas. So that that's always good advice. And then, you know, you, you either purchase the online maps now that have landowners' names, or you can go to the local rural municipality office and purchase a big fold-out map printed on a piece of paper, and you begin the work of tracking down landowners and getting permission, and off you go. So great time of year. Yeah. Speaking of blue wings and right around the corner uh, being early teal season here, I uh, saw an email a few days ago from from a friend of ours, Chris. Uh, um, Scott. <laughs> Can't remember anybody's name. Scott. Um, Paul Dixon over in Northwest Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Right? He's got already yeah. has blue wings there on some of his property. It was 105 degrees, and he actually took some photos of these birds and doing some sort of adaptive cooling. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty neat thing. He sent me cool. sent us an email, and uh, people might see that out on the DU uh, social media at some point is a pretty neat observation, sort of explaining some of the adaptations that birds uh, use to cope with those kind of extreme temperatures. But already, Blue Wings in, in North Louisiana. Uh, let's see. I was going to ask you one other thing. Uh, oh, I guess anything else like habitat-wise, we'll have an opportunity to catch up with you in terms of you know habitat conditions. Other than I guess I would remark that you said in an email here you know, to anticipate, to, to prepare folks for the fact that it's 
it's dry. It's dry there across the prairies, Alberta, Western Saskatchewan. And we are now, I mean, how long has it been since we had good moisture conditions in Alberta? Yeah, a, a number of years. It's It's been dry for a while. So, you know, Mike, we exchanged notes before you guys did the the show on the BPOP. And, you know, I, I, I think the... Uh, you know, the advice that I provided is I, I was back in and reading Johnny Lynch Escape from Mediocrity recently. And one of his quotes I thought was appropriate for this year. It's uh, no cause for wild rejoicing, nor is there occasion for panic. And I think that's where we're at this year. It's like, yeah, it's not going to be awesome, not going to be terrible, kind of going to be somewhere in between. But should you hunt? Absolutely, you should hunt. <laughs> So, you know, that the title of that, Escape from Mediocrity, whenever you said it, this first time it ever popped in my head, I was going to ask you, is that like the latest self-help book that you're reading, you know, Escape from Mediocrity? <laughs> it, it could That's be, but, but, you know, but, but that, that name, you know, when you read that title, when you read the article, he's like, very seldom do we escape from mediocrity. <laughs> and, and that's accurate for the BPOP. Yeah. And we're, we're right in that mediocre zone again. Now, occasionally, you know, things set up and, and it's awesome, but not, not many years out of, out of 10. Is that the case? Yeah, you're right. Uh, let's see. In terms of, I cannot let you go without asking you about some of your decoys that you've been carving. I did see a rosy-billed poacher. I am wondering what the limit on rosy-billed poachers is in, in Canada. Can you help me out there? I, I think it must be eight because there's there's no species restriction up here. But yeah, we won't find many of those there. I carved those after I got the opportunity to go on a trip to Argentina and yeah, saw all kinds of cool birds there. Rosy billed poachards, silver teal were one of my favorites. Yeah. I have a decoy that I made that's a silver teal there. They're cool. So I have an affection for teal across multiple continents. So any besides those, any other sort of decoy... Activity. Still hunting yeah. with the blue ink teal skinny flats, teal. skinny teal. I, I've I've got skinny teal out now. <laughs> I I completed another full dozen of cart of cork teal. So I've got two dozen of my own hand carved cork teal that I'll be hunting over. So no new inventions, yeah. no, no no new ideas for this year. We have the song dog, the skinny teal. Yeah. Anything? What's next? Yeah. I, well, I, I mean, what's it, next you know, on the horizon? Scott's Scott's inventiveness with the skinny teal decoys. You know that. I think he first mentioned this two or three years ago when you first started coming on the podcast. Well, then the popularity of silhouettes, because they, they used to be yeah. really popular in the 80s, you know, and then all of a sudden right. the silhouettes just came back. You've got all these manufacturers out here making silhouettes. And so I'd I think like it to, was after. I think it was after wow. you talked about having your your skinny teal. Yeah. So you're influencing the industry right now. In influencer <laughs> extraordinaire. There we go. Yeah, they work. They work great. I mean, if you find the right water depth, it's not very deep. So the silhouettes along the edge look just like the birds out there. So cool. Right. I don't have anything else. I'm Chris. good. We, uh, Scott, anything from nope, your end? I think I think we've I think we've covered the bases. Yeah. You won't let me say. Well, so <laughs> cut that. I'm doing some editing now. <laughs> uh, Chris Isaac's just shaking his All head right. over here. <laughs> He's like, hey, it was all good. I didn't need to do anything. And then he screwed it up. <laughs> all right. Scott, appreciate you joining us. We will reconnect with you, no doubt, over the next few months to uh, hear how things unfolded up there. And 
uh, yeah, good luck to you as you get out, and good luck to everybody else. Yeah, for sure. Don't let a don't let a, a down breeding population report uh, discourage you from getting out and chasing these birds. There will be some birds out there for you to for you to get, and uh, good luck doing so. So, Scott, thanks for joining us. Chris, great to have you in here as well. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Stevens from DU Canada. We always appreciate him joining us. I also thank my co-host Chris Jennings for being here, and thank our producer Chris. Isaac, who always does a great job with everything he does here for the podcast, getting these edited and then out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next, generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.